Hello and welcome. This is Rob Shank, host of this podcast, Shank Talks Bunhofer. It's what I do. For a little bit of time with you, I talk about one of my favorite personalities and the individual at the center of the mission for the Institute that I had and the sponsor of this podcast, the Dietrich Bunhofer Institute here in Washington, D.C. You can find out all about it at tdbi.org. And we'd love to be in touch with you. If you're a fan of Bonhoeffer, if you just have an interest in Bonhoeffer, then we're interested in you. And we'd love to keep company with you. So please do be in touch with us through our website, TDBI for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute.org. And on this podcast, we talk about Bonhoeffer, his life, his times, his interests, his writing. Of course, his life includes his dramatic death as a martyr. But if that's all you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that he was murdered by the Nazis at Flossenburg concentration camp, then you know only a small slice of his life and work because uh, he was a pastor, a very passionate pastor in Germany during one of the most trying times of human history. He was a brilliant scholar a moral philosopher, a Christian ethicist, a theologian, and all in his 20s and 30s, which made him a brilliant intellectual. And he left us a wonderful body of work. We explore that and particularly its application in our own times. How does Dietrich Bonhoeffer help us in our own day? And sometimes we answer that question directly, sometimes indirectly, sometimes I answer that myself, and other times I include other people in the discussion, as I do in this podcast with Doug Padgett, uh, a Christian brother, a fellow minister, a Christian leader in our country that uh, I've only recently come to know. He is a remarkable person. Uh, I've been introduced to him as the force behind uh, Vote Common Good, which is a nonpartisan, suprapartisan movement, uh, but that is admittedly uh, allowing or giving allowance to evangelicals to think a little bit differently politically, to be a little uh, exploratory with their politics, and to begin looking uh, into a strange land for some, and that is into the world of the Democratic Party. And while Doug will be the first one to tell you, uh, you certainly shouldn't always vote for Democrats, but you have biblical and Christian moral permission that is given to you to rise above party and compare each and look at what for you conforms uh, more closely to the model ministry and message of Christ. And I explore all of this in a conversation with Doug that I had at the National Press Club. We were not able to nab a studio, so we were actually given a back room adjacent to the kitchen. You're going to hear the kitchen staff in the background of this discussion, which is apropos because Doug and I both love to spend our time with common, ordinary folk, and I've come to love the kitchen staff at the press club. And you're going to hear their noise in the background. They were kind enough to give us a room uh, near uh, where they prepare the food so that uh, he and I could have a uh, somewhat private conversation, and I'm indebted to my 
my gang of kitchen crew there that I just love uh, for that. Let me tell you a little bit about Doug. He's wine, uh, widely known as a primary co-founder with Tony Jones of the Emerging Church, a movement that responded to stasis in the traditional church. He is pastor, uh, or actually recently uh, retired pastor, of Solomon's Porch, a congregation in Minneapolis that focuses on addressing human needs in the neighboring community and facilitating a more personal encounter with God. He is also host of Doug Paget Radio and the author of several books, including A Christianity Worth Believing, Body Prayer, Evangelism in the Inventive Age, uh, and he has a new book coming out. And I should be able to tell you about it. But just go on Amazon, put in Doug's name. His last name is spelled P-A-G-I-T-T. And you will get a rich storehouse of material that you can really get nourished on spiritually, socially, politically, intellectually. Uh, Great guy. Had a lot of fun in this conversation. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I welcome you into the, the freewheeling conversation with Doug Paget of Vote Common Good. Doug, we had quite the conversation over dinner tonight here at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Sounds more prestigious than it is, but the food was great, huh? It was, it was terrific. I, I've, I've never had Ethiopian food with a pita. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. And I've never and had it with a, with a baked potato. Uh, <laughs> but hey, uh, we, we made the best of it. And it was enjoyable. It was, it was great. But the conversation was even more enjoyable because I learned your story, which is quite an epic odyssey. And before we get to vote common good and the concepts behind it, which is where I'd like to end up in the conversation if we can, I'd really love our podcast family to know you. Uh, maybe it's too much to ask that they would know you as much as I now know you, but let's try to get them as close yeah. as, as we can because your story is a really beautiful one mm. of a spiritual journey, of a human odyssey, yeah. a family drama. I mean, it's all in there. And yes. I, yeah. I won't ask you to rehearse everything we talked about at the dinner table because that would not be possible. Yeah. But can you give us a little synopsis? I mean, who is Doug Padgett? Yeah. You know, I, uh, that's a, that, in some ways, that's a great introductory question for a podcast. It's also the question, I think, all of us ask ourselves all the time, right? Hmm. It's sort of, who am I? Um, hmm. And <clears throat> in, in some ways, I think of myself a lot as a, um, a person sort of wrapped up in a story that I'm trying to, f- I'm trying to understand. I mean, my, my temperament, personality, uh, way of being in the world is really sort of action-oriented and directive and... So I've noticed. No, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, if non-contemplative was a way of being, it would sort of it, it could be obvious uh, mm. that that's that's sort of how I go. But that's not what it feels like to me, right? Like all of the projects that I've been involved in um, professionally, I've worked in big churches, I've worked for nonprofit organizations, I've started churches, um, helped people start churches, I've started organizations, I've run organizations. Um, they're all part of that contemplative. Practice actually. This afternoon, I was with Sister Simone 
uh, Campbell uh, from the network lobby of Catholic workers, and she was stressing that all of her work comes out of the contemplative work of Catholicism. And I thought, when she first said it, I thought, boy, I wish I was a contemplative. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, I realized, oh, that as she described it more, I thought, well, that's that's actually what it is because I'm trying to take seriously um, the the things that have happened in, in my life and the things that have happened uh, that I've been a part of and sometimes have happened to me. I feel like my own faith happened to me. I wasn't raised religiously, and I had an experience when I was 16, almost 17 years old, that. Uh, I'm still trying to catch up with. I'm 52, and and I really am trying to find uh, find out what that was about. And I feel uh, that happened for me. I, I know the specific day. It was April 1st, 1983. Um, I had a kind of experience with learning of Christianity for the first time at a passion play to Jesus People Church. And I've really been trying, truly, Minneapolis. In, in Minneapolis. And I really have been trying to come to grips with what happened there. There was something there uh, uh, that night. I mean, specifically April 1st. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. was lost on that. Yeah, yeah, the April Fool's Day. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's great. Uh, but also, sort of, I don't whatever it is. The 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 following three or six months, nine months, um, had an effect. And and I've realized this for a, a lot of spiritual people that we spend our lives trying to get back to that moment we first experienced the divine. Mm. And it doesn't mean when you first experience church. It might be for some people. For me, my experience of the divine and my introduction to Christianity were simultaneous because I didn't have any religious experience before that. But for other people, it's different. But there's some moment you have a sense of a connection to, to God or the divine or the calling or the cosmos or, the, or Jesus or whatever you know, your nomenclature is for that. And I just think we all spend our lives trying to... Um, make sense of that again. And I think it's the great gift. And I heard someone say once that there's the gift of going first, where mm. you, it was about vulnerability, and it was about if you share your vulnerability and you share your story first, that gives permission for other people to do it. It's I've what, seen the power of that. Yeah. It's mm. what the tradition that we've both been a part of calls a testimony. Yes, yes. And when those are honest and real, um, sometimes rehearsed because sometimes you have to say it a hundred times before you can get to the truth of it. Sometimes mm. that hundredth telling is just your own fiction of it, and I worry sometimes which which one I'm in. You know, I can't keep track of it. Um, but so anyway, who I, I I think I'm a contemplative trying to figure out how the 2019 version of this life, this one precious life I have, matches the 1983 experience of life that I had, which somewhere is rooted in the 1966, July 5th, 1st breath experience I had, which I've come to realize as I've gotten older, is actually a part of a long legacy of other people's lives. And um, so, yeah. okay, so all of that, I don't know who I am. That's sort of my philosophical I'm going to say you it. sound terribly Bonhoeffrian. And yeah, I apologize course, for that. I, well, I, I, oh, <laughs> don't, because with this podcast, of course, Bonhoeffer is a constant okay, reference good, point. Good, good. Uh, and I always warn people when I sit down at a table for conversation that I, I'm the bore in the room because somehow I'll manage to turn it to Bonhoeffer and I'll always come back to Bonhoeffer. I and this that. podcast is talking Bonhoeffer. And as you are 
reflecting on your own contemplative uh, component to your own spiritual journey mm. and, and your own life and personality. It's very reflective of his. Mm. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, people in my world, at least, will often think that a contemplative life is, sometime, is somehow at odds with mm -hmm. the life of action and... Yeah. and uh, uh, I think that myself. I, I yeah, feel and, like I and, wish I was a contemplative instead but, of a but, doer. But, the, but history, <laughs> including Bonhoeffer's experience, mm. proves that, in fact, the two fuel one another. Mm. That the, but anyway, not to interrupt, because no, I, I really to, want people to hear yeah. this, this journey that started when you were in your teens, coming out of a very, very dysfunctional home. Yeah. And when you had that first encounter with the divine... It utterly revolutionized your yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a that's a curious phrase, dysfunctional, because in some ways we functioned uh, hmm. uh, against the odds. Like I, it was a tough run for my parents; they had a hard go, and I just keep thinking, how did they even pull it off to the level that they did? It's, yeah. Okay. So I stand corrected. Maybe they maybe they were in fact consonantly functional. Yeah, but but maybe just barely. Okay. <laughs> Which might be the same thing yeah. instead of dysfunctional, right? I, I don't know. It's um, I think we only have our own experiences to as our baseline. It's it's why we need empathy, I think, so that we mm. can bring in other people's storylines into our own, because our own is so strong and powerful. But um, you were... My parents had a hard, hard life, and the things that happened in them to them and that they can, were a part of and did made their lives hard. And uh, I was born into a situation where the advantages were not... Uh, I didn't grow up economically and socially and culturally in a, the kind of family where the breaks went your way. Mm. And I think that honestly helped me see the see the Jesus narrative that it, there was a there was an immediate salvation. When people would say that salvation isn't an experience just for afterlife, having a born again experience where I felt like I came alive at age sixteen, almost seventeen, I was like, of course, like. Why would you have to argue that, hmm. that salvation is not just an afterlife experience? Have you not all experienced this? And I'm still a little perplexed as to how people stay in the Christian faith if they haven't, if they haven't experienced something Nicodemus-like where it feels like you're, you're born again hmm. um, and, you're, and your life starts anew. And when you uh, said at the table tonight during our dinner conversation, you, you said, man, I was born again. Yeah. Yeah. I really believed you when you said yeah, that because I, yeah, the story too. you had told, this was really a reorganization of your whole interior and exterior worlds. Yeah, I, I don't know if, I mean, somehow, uh, I, I was born July 5th, 1966, but I feel like, uh, um, I don't know, there was 16 and a half years of lag time between that first breath mm. <laughs> and... Um, when my life started, I don't, it just felt like it was. I I I don't tend to believe people who say that they have near near uh, death experiences or that they went to heaven or something, right? I, right. I mean, I'm I just, always a little skeptical myself. Yeah, I don't know. I just I can't help it. I, and I, since I, most of those books are later pulled off the shelves, it, it kind of yeah. When they, they later tell you I made that up or my dad made that up, that. I, I right. tend to believe them more later than, yeah. than at first. 
But I think the reason they resign, resound with people is that they tell us something that we actually do experience in, mm. in our life. There, there's a moment in which you you come to life or you see or you you uh, have an awakening. I, I don't know. I, you're born again. There's there's something. It uh, feels like it all it all starts. And it's haunting, though. This is the thing that uh, a friend of mine helped me realize is that a, an experience with the divine haunts you. Mm. And Bruce Springsteen has this great line in his, his um, one-man show from Broadway where he says uh, um, something like, adulthood is the place at which the ancestors that haunt you become those that accompany you. Ooh. Isn't that great? Beautifully put. Wow. I mean, the idea that you're being haunted by something at some moments and then you're being accompanied. Mm. And I don't want to be overly sort of cutesy with words, but for me, uh, the Holy Spirit feels like an accompaniment and the Holy Ghost feels like a haunting. Mm. And I, I just feel like my life is riddled with both the ghost and the spirit, you know, that there's... Wow. I, I don't know if you're at the age where you start to think, I don't know, have I... And I don't think this in a punishment way at all. I don't think God punishes. So I don't fear God in punishment narratives. But I just don't want to, like, not care for... I hope, I hope I've tended well that experience that got me into all of this. Mm-hmm. You know? And that experience set you on a course. So... You become a Christian in your late teens, and that itself has a big story (laughs) attached to it. And you find yourself in the born-again, evangelical, Bible-believing, if you will, Christian subculture in this country. How, how, yeah, how 19, that 1983, out. and that, yeah. that, that, I like to say the 1983 edition of... Yeah. Uh, Which had its non- own soundtrack. Totally, didn't it? Yes. Like the non-denominational parachurch experience of Christianity in the early 1980s. That's the world I got into. And you were passing out tracks. Yeah, I was... And, and you were leading Bible studies, participating in Bible and studies starting initially. Things and getting, and getting suspended from school for my religious beliefs. and For witnessing, if you will. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. No, no, for preaching. Yeah, for preaching and witnessing. Yeah. And, yeah. So you're what they call, in that era, or my era anyway, was a Jesus freak. You were yeah. a Jesus person. A in fact, you literally yeah. attended a church called Jesus People. Yeah, for one night. Yeah, <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had my conversion experience so, in the Jesus People. I didn't know they were a church. Like, I didn't know so much. I didn't know it was a church. They did a play. It was Easter time, and they did a play, the Passion Play. That's what I saw. And um, I, I thought the culmination of the Passion Play was Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because that was the alternative to a... Um, uh, kind of a of a of a payback culture, like um, that forgiveness was the alternative to uh, to paying people back evil for evil. I thought that's good enough news right there. I right. literally because I didn't know anything and I was uh, I didn't I didn't pay attention to religion, which I know to a lot of Christians they can't imagine that someone could be like an American kid in the eighties in suburban. 
Minneapolis and not know that the resurrection was a thing, I can assure you there are people in every suburb and city that just have no idea. Like, they really, really, really don't know. So another Bunhofer ding, if this were a game show, it would show up on the board. Yeah. Uh, world come of age. Oh. A world that doesn't know God. Yeah. Doesn't know how to name God. Has no religious reference point. Right. And out of that comes his concept of religionless Christianity, mm-hmm. how to practice the gospel in a culture that has no reference point for that. Yeah. And you're living that out. Yes, for Embracing for sure. the simple yeah. gospel as you understand it without the trappings, sans religious trappings. Yeah, yeah. And you become kind of a contrarian. From what I understand from our conversation. Yeah, from our, yeah and, and temperamentally, I'm a, I'm a contrarian. So I find out that um, in uh, 2001, I connect with part of my dad's extended family, his cousin, and uh, through Ancestry.com or something early days after my father died. This person reaches out, and we sort of start this little correspondence, and I end up down in Missouri reason my wife and I and our family we stopped by to meet a cousin we didn't have much connection to our biological and distant family so we meet we meet Lowell Noel and um, he says oh here I have the I have this this book of the Paget family uh, name in history so this is in 2001 and ancestry.com not, it's not as easy to find this stuff yes right so he says, okay, so I'm looking through the book. He says, well, look in this section. And there's a description of the family crest and the family motto for pageants, which I didn't even know. But and where did it originate? In from? the 1600s, families would just pick a motto and they'd pick a language. Ours happened to be Italian. Mm-hmm. We, we were not Italian. We're 100% English. But they would pick an Italian family motto. And the motto is per il sway contrario. Oh. Which means... I know for just those, enough Spanish to identify for those some of who that. are contrarians, and I have lived wow. my whole life feeling like a contrarian. My religious experience felt very contrarian. Uh, I, I just thought I, I always connected with Jesus, saying, "Well, you've heard it said, but I say to you." I'm like, "Well, it couldn't be more contrarian than that." One of my favorite phrases in the it, gospel. Is that so? Absolutely. I wrote a book called Flipped, which is all about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Flipped is I'll about. I'll be reading it. I, you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, it's it's the series of those. So you just heard it, and when you buy it on smile.amazon.com and you pick Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your designated charity, you actually help us. So when you buy Doug's book, yeah, Flipped, Flipped, <laughs> yes. and and I'm buying it, so I hope you yeah, will too. Yeah. Just make sure it's on smile.amazon.com and pick. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your designated charity. I will will tweet that out myself. Believe Um, it or not, Amazon actually helps organizations like ours. So yeah, it's really good that yeah, it's good they do. do. You're you're the retailer. Uh, I mean, the the correspondence between our two stories is are stunning. It is striking. uh, You know, for our listeners, we were almost telling each other's stories. I mean, we could have sandwiched in you know any clip from either. And it would have made some sense. Uh, amazing. So, but as you start, you're growing older, and you go to a Christian college. Yeah. And then there is a call. Yeah, I went to, to play. I went to play basketball. I knew I was going to be doing ministry work. I didn't think it would be church work because the parachurch 
which I don't even know is a phrase anymore, if anybody ever says parachurch, but there was a time right. when parachurch was a big, big deal. I don't hear that much anymore, but that's where I thought I would land because I didn't have any church experience. I didn't know anything. That wasn't my world. I was a free roaming, newly birthed evangelist. Um, and um, I went to a college that said, if you were a member of a church of that denomination, you got a grant to go to college. So I went to a church and signed up to be a church member and then worked at that church for uh, a dozen years. And that was uh, part of the Baptist General Conference, Swedish Baptist sort of holiness yeah, everybody movement. Everybody knows the Swedish Baptist. Holiness, I mean, who, who doesn't holiness, know a little Swedish? Holiness <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the Lutherans moved to Minnesota uh, from Germany, uh, Norway, and Sweden, they, they had choices to pick. So they created three streams in the evangelical world. The Baptist General Conference, the Evangelical Free Church, and the Evangelical Covenant Church. They all come from the same Lutheran, Swedish, German roots. Anyway. Okay, another game show, ding, because the Swedish church was very influential in Bonhoeffer's uh, whole drama. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole story there that's worth investigating, wow. but not now. He so, is a, sounds like Bonhoeffer was an early Pagidian. Uh, he could have been. Yeah, I, yeah. I think yeah. you guys would have found each other. <laughs> yeah. I definitely. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. you can yeah. read him very much. He did come from a very privileged, uh, you know, yeah, I know, I, I know the type. I know uh, the type. Yes. Uh, so you, you, you would have had to find each other on different ends of Berlin, I, I, but I think you would have found each other. As well, he did, he went into the underclass and fell in love with the young people he worked with. Well, and what you would hope the gospel calls you to do, right? You would hope that it calls the culturally, societally well-to-do to move to another space, and it would call those who are in the the classes that have been dismissed uh, up into the classes of power, right? That the, the flow seems to me should go both ways. That that God it's ought well to put. God ought to call the the um, the blending of the faithful to be moving both directions. Mm. I, mm. Uh, I, I don't disagree with the notion that God has a preferential uh, um, relationship with the poor. Um, he seems to mention them an awful lot yeah. in his written yeah. revelation. And sometimes that preferential care and relationship means that those from the poor world want to go to the places of the, the, the wealthy and, and preach to them the good news, too. Yes. And, and so sometimes I think we get a little, uh, like we were talking earlier about another topic, we can get a little smug. Mm. And I don't think there's anything that can rival being as anti-Christian as being smug and being cute. Hmm. And cow, we make Christianity smug and cute. It just—it's yeah. um, just not even human or nice. I don't know. It's. Um, but and then, somewhere on this path, something begins to change for you because you're—you're not—you you don't become the kind of cookie cutter evangelical pastor. Yeah, I think it was my contrarian. <laughs> I think it was my contrarian nature, and the fact that my my conversion to Christianity was so stark. I always felt like churches and established religion clearly hadn't done its job because it abandoned families like mine. Mm -hmm. I heard a church consultant say, he said, there's no religious movement in the United States that bases their success on people who do their laundry in public spaces. Wow. Wow. And he used the category of public laundries yeah. as a way to 
that they all want to be sure that it's a separate group of people. So I always carried a little, a little chip on my shoulder about the fact that nobody cared about our apartment complex that I grew up in. There were no evangelists knocking on the door. We, 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 were, uh, we were on our own. In our, it was called the Village Terrace Apartments. And this little village of ours, um, we, were having to, we were having to make our way, which is sort of curious. A dozen years later, uh, after my Christian conversion, uh, no, uh, 20 years later, I started a national organization called Emergent Village, which was these emerging mm. church culture people. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure that village thing was actually that Village Terrace Apartments I grew up in. Yeah, uh, We used to refer sure. to ourselves as the village people. And that, so, well, so I grew up in this world in which the sort of left behinds of society lived in our apartment complex and a lot of gay people and what we'd now call transgender. Back then, they were cross-dressers. And that was specific language. Transvestites. Transvestites even. even. Like yeah. it was, that was a powerful, that was an owned term. Yes. It wasn't seen as a derogatory term. And, and people from other countries that couldn't pay their rent. And like I lived in that kind of space. And so when I became a Christian, and I would hear Christ, other Christians talking about th that group of people as the problem, it, that's the part that I never bought. I'm like, these are the, this is what the gospel, like when I read the gospels and then the letters to the early church, it's like, oh no, that describes, describes the people I grew up with. Right, like even and it Paul seems when he like when he yells people at people, Jesus is, kept company with. Yes, Jesus kept company with, and that Paul is like, all right, so you people that are like getting drunk before everybody else can get there for the the, the love feast, like knock that. I'm like, oh no, I know those people. <laughs> like, right, right, the, <laughs> we lived in the village too. Oh, yeah, they, <laughs> it's kind we of live in the same apartment complex. I, yeah, I mean that that is, um, and and the thing is, you can make light of it. Um, you know, John Lennon saying, Christ, you know it ain't easy, they're gonna crucify me. Only if you sort of really understand that that that's gallows humor, right? Like you're you're able yes. to laugh at it because you know how real it is. You're not yes. mocking it, you're not being smug, you're not being cute. Yeah. You are um, you're taking it really seriously. You know, the yes. the, the singers of the blues uh, from Memphis, like they knew the blues. They weren't they, did. they weren't doing a cover. And I, just, I felt all the time like Christians were doing a cover version of the gospel. And, and I'd never really got that. So I always thought, whatever you people, if you're telling me that I should hate someone, of course not. And, and God's kindness leads to repentance. Like I memorized these verses. The, the Navigators, were you ever hanging around oh, that crowd sure. at all? Absolutely. You know, so I, would, I had a verse pack mm -hmm. and I would memorize verses okay. and I would say the number and then I would say the verse and I would say the number. So, you know, I know 1 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. Like that, that was in me and these phrases, these kind of poppy catchphrases really did create a mentality that I think was the armor of God that protected me against a lot of that churchy kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but then some of the big moral questions were hard. You know, there was a period of time where I was really committed to pro-life efforts. Um, mm -hmm. Not because, but I was never anti-abortion. Hmm. And I don't know, I never understood the anti-abortion argument. I draw a distinction now after having spent 30 years in the movement. Uh-huh. I do draw. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to interrupt us just for a second to explain uh, that if you're hearing background noise, it's because we are so important, that is Doug and me, yeah. that we are sitting right off the kitchen Yes. at the National Press in Club. In a private right? dining room. <laughs> in a private, 
but with a picture of John yes, Kennedy John over my Kennedy's shoulder. on the wall. Uh, but it was Jose in the kitchen yeah. that gave us this space, yeah. and we're very grateful for it because it's our studio. Yes. Yeah, but it's, it's right off the kitchen, and you're hearing them cleaning up. After I love it. <laughs> evening I dinner. So that's the, the noise of the kitchen, and these guys have been like angels to us yeah. tonight. But you, Doug, you end up a pastor. So you do go into the church. Yeah. And that part of the story, I don't know yet. That, that's, oh, that's right. That will be a yeah, fresh part of the story because I don't know where you enter the, do you ever enter the conventional pastoral role? Yes. So I worked at a big mega church called Wooddale Church uh, with, that was deeply rooted in the evangelical tradition of the 80s and 90s. Um, and I worked, it was a big church staff, and I was on the church staff. And, and today um, is even tied to the National Association of Evangelicals because the yeah. pastor, longtime pastor there, I think he's still in office uh, as president of the NAE. But so he, that's he kind may of, have just retired. I think okay. I got an email about his name is Leith Anderson. Yeah, Leith is, Leith is my American evangelical. Yes, and there, I mean, there are a few people that I would root my Christianity. Uh, uh, the, the path of my Christianity uh, and credit it to um, as much as Leith Anderson. Like Leith was an ex- You were on staff? I was on staff. He was uh, a really good to me. He was a serious mentor. I, uh, we, we've, we always disagreed theologically. I think we didn't talk a lot about that. I was more free-spirited and smart-assy than his temperament would have ever allowed. He did, was, did the engineer uh, bleep that? Uh, oh, hope, no, we don't bleep on no, this. No, no, no. We don't no, bleep. No. Because ass is actually a yeah. biblical term. Yes. So it does I, I often say it's better than being a dumbass. <laughs> yeah. So if, if being a smart ass is a problem. <laughs> yes. uh, it just maybe. Uh, um, I was thinking of the talking ass. But that's... An, oh, I see. I we see. won't try yeah, to yeah, define yeah. that. But we need to find um, a lexicon for that one. But I've often said if if the progressive Christians I hang around with could be as gracious as the conservatives of the 1980s and 90s that I was graced with, um, I think the progressive Christian movement would be much better off. Hmm. I think we could learn a lot about being gracious uh, and giving people giving people a minute. Um, and uh, also being firm and holding your own ground. Like I disagree with the positions that the National Association of Evangelicals holds on things. Um, uh, For instance, just so we understand where you are. Yeah, I mean, I think they support gun rights. I think they support the death penalty. I think that they support war. I think that they support, um, uh, they, they, they nose around in tax code in a way that, that is harmful to people. Uh, I think they uh, continue to advocate for a state's rights in a level that is really a cover for white supremacy and for uh, r- racism. So I think there's a, a whole number of things, you know. So then that this, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you enjoy the show, right? Kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> so this gets us uh, to an important part of the story here, and bigger than your story. Because, and I'm so sorry, I'm looking at the counter uh, on yeah, the recorder. I, I told you, so 20 minutes I, gotta, is, I apologize. I've got to fast forward, which I regret. Yeah, it's terrible. But to kind of fast forward a little bit, so uh, you use the term progressive Evangelical. evangelicalism. Yeah. To some people, at least in the world I once inhabited, that's an oxymoron. Yeah. 
But how do you see it? First of all, how do you define progressive evangelicalism? What makes you a progressive evangelical mm -hmm. as compared to some other kind of evangelical? Yeah. And why is that important? Why, why is it important for us to draw that distinction? Let's go there first. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, uh, so what do I mean by it? Um, I mean it in the terms of pro progressive versus conservative and progress versus conservation. So I'm granting that conservative means conservationist, preservationist, keeping it as it is, um, being careful, conserving, um, uh, holding back, all the things that conserve conservation, conservatives, it is. And it's there's a lot of things someone might want to be conservative about. I, I'm, you know, to make light of it for a moment, I'm extremely conservative with my battery on my phone. Like if the thing gets below 35%, I, you'd think I was in a total crisis. I carry like an extra battery. I know that terror. Yeah, it's just, it's, 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 it's irrational how conservative I am with the, like I turn down the screen brightness and all this nonsense. Right, so I, whatever, like that, that's a way of being conservative. I don't think conservatism fits the gospel by nature, by the call of the gospel. It is progressive. It's moving forward. Where the spirit blows, we will follow. That um, that that God that there are children of of another pasture. There there uh, that there are uh, those who you do not know who are part of this. That, um, that that you will go into all the nations, into all the world, and you will find those who who are waiting. And at the and, table, you 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 quoted one of my favorite passages in the gospel. You have heard it said. Yeah. But I say to you. Yes. So the conservative line is this, but I'm saying something radically different. Than radically that. different. And Jesus could have said, you've heard it said, and then made it more conservative. My experience and understanding of all of those phrases and all of Jesus's teachings don't go that way. He is clearly in the line of the prophets. He's not in the line of the priests and of the temple. In, in that in that metaphor, so he's pushing it forward. He's he's driving the agenda um, to keep moving, to be more inclusive, to be more loving, to be more open. He he wants to take it from from loving God to loving self to loving neighbor and loving enemy. That the four loves of Jesus can have no bounds, and that's what I mean by by progressive. And the, the Pentecostals had, have had times where they've been really instructive for us in this in all the, in all the traditions, in the Christian traditions and in the non-Christian traditions. There's, there's Pentecostals, you know, and yes. all of them. The Spirit shows up and then, and then starts to go, into, and then you try to follow and make sense of it. Mm. Um, so I think as a Christian, I think, and as an evangelical, you, you are compelled to be progressive. I, I, I would prefer that I would just be able to say I'm an evangelical as compared to the conservatives who try to claim themselves to be evangelicals. Mm. But that, mm. I, I don't know, that's, that's sort of mm. binary and pissy, right? Like I, I'm, I've become comfortable. I've, I've been lots of versions. I've been post-evangelical. I've been um, neo-evangelical. Um, and I take a lot of, uh, of strength from the movement in the 1940s and 50s of what was then called the neo-evangelical mm -hmm. movement, which started the National Association which of Which was a reaction to fundamentalism. And that's my point. And I isolationism. I think a lot of current 
expressions of Christianity that want to claim evangelicalism are better suited being called fundamentalists like they were in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that what they're describing is a bounded set, limited expression of what it means. And there's a perfectly good term for that. It's fundamentalism. I think evangelicalism is something else. Uh, all of my friends, especially those who love me, say, why do you keep using that term? Just stop using it. And I would be glad to if it didn't carry such weight in the broader culture. I'd be glad to just say I'm a progressive Christian. Um, but that also has its own subset meaning to it. Sure. No one thinks that it's someone who believes that a personal experience with Jesus is meaningful, that believes that the Bible can be used as a, as a very instructive um, teaching for us on, on many issues of faith that matter. That, that it involves the calling of people into a way of life. Like I see Jesus as a master teacher. I see Jesus calling people to a new way of humanity. And I see Jesus as the son of God and the brother of humanity. And that, that is evangelicalism. Like that is, um, that was evangelicalism in the, in the 19th century and in the 20th century and in the 21st century. And it drives me crazy. Even you find it in the 11th century. Oh, is that right? I mean, early enough, but yeah, this term, and and it was a departure from the conventional or the conservative, if you will. Yeah, conventional. So it was word. always a radical term, and of course, it drove the Reformation, which was radical yes. change on every level. And you take this theology, yeah, and you apply it in every area, but f I want to kind of end on the discussion of how you apply it in the political sphere. Yeah. So I've become very politically engaged and socially and social issues engaged. So a few areas that matter a lot to me, the death penalty, gun violence, um, and um, electoral politics okay, <laughs> as a whole. I, and and I, I've been with you uh, in that a little, I've saw right. a glimpse of it. Yes. <clears throat> and, and we have big plans for you in 2020, by the way, so don't, don't think you I'm can, ready sne for you can sneak away. I, I care a lot about certain issues. I think global climate change is um, the preeminent issue of, of our day, and I, I don't know how people of faith especially progressive faith, are going to engage in this. But, but we have to figure that out. I think it's crucial. But on some social issues, gun violence and the death penalty, um, immigration and then electoral politics really, really matter. So those are issues I've, I'm an, I'm an activist and, and I get arrested and I write things and I go around and I try to stir up trouble. Yeah, I get arrested for that stuff. I try to use my privilege that is granted to me as a educated white middle-aged male on behalf of raising issues about those like the death penalty and gun violence and uh, immigration so th those are three issues that I've been arrested on and want to be arrested on more often to try to raise the, the specter that our, our current laws around these issues need to be looked at through the lens of people being affected by the criminal justice system. So, so all of this a actually finds its place in a new movement. Yeah. And I've watched it in action, and there's a whole lot of folks 
uh, I know who would say, you know, voting blue, mm-hmm. voting Democrat is in conflict yeah. with with Christian yeah. witness, with biblical truth, with yeah. godly living. How do you answer that? I mean, you must encounter that as I do. Yeah. At the risk of being flippant, I answer it with, um, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, people say that's not how it goes. When uh, Paul calls for the inclusion of the uncircumcised, they say that's not how it goes. When Peter goes into the house of, the, of Cornelius, he says this isn't how it goes. So that, that impulse alone should probably turn up the ear of any true hearer of the biblical narrative that, oh, hang on a minute, let me just check and make sure that I'm not in a reflexive cultural response to the gospel that's causing me to not hear it. So, so I think that any time we get to, when you see a person who seems to be or claims to be of faith doing something that you would never do, it's just, it's a, it's a best practice of Christian spirituality to check yourself and say, is this more like uh, Jesus including uh, uh, the outsiders? Is this more like Jesus, you know, healing the, um, the, the son of the Roman soldier? Or is this uh, more like someone uh, faulting in their faith? And if your conviction is it's faulting in your faith, then, then, then don't do it. I mean, I, I, I have no desire to try to convince people to vote for someone they don't want to vote for. I have all the interest in the world of asking people to use their vote on behalf of other people if they feel that that's what they're called to do. And I, I think Philippians 3 has this great call to all areas of life, including voting, which is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves when you pursue your life in the common good. And we're called to not vote for our self-interests. We're certainly not called to vote in the interests of a party. We're called to consider others better than ourselves. And if you could reconcile voting for Republicans in this age, then all the power to you. If you uh, our thing is called Vote Common Good, and I believe that people know what good is. And if this all seems good, go ahead and vote. I will encourage people, you know, of the 30, 40, 50, 70 million evangelicals who don't vote, a lot of them sit it out because they think there's no good choice and they're trying to do the best thing. And even if you think it, it doesn't work for you, if you were to take on a partner, somebody who's affected by policy in this country and vote on their behalf, maybe it's a working mom, maybe it's an immigrant, maybe it's a child in foster care, maybe it's someone who's sent to war, maybe it's someone in the world who's impacted by war, maybe it's someone who can't um, make it work in, in our society with the jobs that they work and paying for their health care. If you voted on their behalf rather than your own, would you really vote for Republican policies currently? And could you support this administration and the complicit Republican Congress? I mean, it's just so outrageous to me. Um, but I don't think people need to be harangued or shamed into that. Um, Republicans can't be wrong about everything. Democrats can't be right about everything. The Green Party's got to have a point someplace, even an independent. I don't know if it's possible for a libertarian, but I'll just grant that maybe even a libertarian could be right about something. I, I've been controversial enough to say 
Even communists are right about some things. Even the communists are right about that. Especially they're like, we the people, in order to form a more perfect... No, that's the Constitution, oh, that's not right. the Communist Manifesto. Wait a minute. Uh-oh. Uh, we easily confuse those I things. I do that a lot. <laughs> I do that a lot where I feel like I'm doing the preamble of the Constitution I mean, certainly, and it turns out to sound like a communist manifesto. Uh, you know, Honestly. what is the early church when they hold a common purse and when two of them are actually killed for being too possessive yes. of, uh, of, of wealth. Of owning your own and of lying owning. on your taxes about it. Well... We can explore all these things. Yeah. You know, of course, I think so. you make a very good point, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but there's no category that can capture the magnificence of no. the gospel and of Jesus. When people ask me the question, well, you know, are you a conservative or now or are you a liberal? I, I say neither of them can capture yeah. my understanding of this. I mean, one can get a little closer than the other. Yeah. Uh, depending on the nature of the conversation, but what you, what I, what I saw so beautifully in the movement that uh, you're really at the forefront of now is that you give Christians permission. That that's what we're trying to, to do. To ask questions right. that they have been forbidden from asking. Yeah. If you if you're inclined to vote differently than you have in the past, we want you to know you're not alone. Indeed, that, not that, alone. That is. Um, that's a that's a big part of it. It's this whole the, the gift of going first and the testimony of the saints and the community of people that surround you. The, the, uh, the, we, we like to say we did a tour, which you were a part of uh, for, for uh, one night or two nights. I can't remember. A couple but, of nights. But we did 30 cities all across the it's country. It's got to be a blur for you. It was quite and, the tour. Yeah, and it was so wonderful. I just cannot wait to do it again. And we like to say to people, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses here. And... Um, you can join in this if, if you want to. I think the gospel fundamentally gives you freedom. And it's, it also means the freedom to, to reject and to say no and to turn away. I mean, Jesus was fond of gathering up a betrayer and a denier and a doubter. We're the three of the disciples of the names that we tend to know. Yes. Right? Judas, Peter, and Thomas. Um, some people are hard-pressed to find the other names. Uh, mm. You know, maybe a John here or there, mm. or, or a, a son of thunder. But the, the, right, these are the famous ones for that very reason, that, yes. um, that the gospel is the freedom uh, to, to convert as a follower. It, it's not. It, it's not only your conversion when you're in. It's the. It's the conversion as you as you walk the road. So, when I was out on the road with you, one of the things I thought of was, it, it had the feeling that must have attended to those early days of the Jesus People phenomenon, mm -hmm. the Jesus People movement uh, in America. One of the greatest waves of evangelical revival, if right. you will. And yet, what was happening back then were hippies yeah. uh, and, you know, people in the margins were right. coming into the churches. Counterculture people, yeah. Counterculture. And they, you know, I mean, by the descriptions of those days, had long hair and torn up jeans, and some of them hadn't bathed in a week. And they were alienated and disaffected yeah. and, and disconnected to the society around them and of course pastors like chuck smith the founder of calvary yep. chapel were resoundly criticized some of them ostracized mm -hmm. by their denominations and other church structures because they dared 
to allow those people in the sanctuary. Yes. And there were people in there saying, you can't have people who are dressed like this, who behave like this, yeah. who sit on the floor with bare feet. Yeah. Uh, it desecrates the church. But they were onto something. Yes. They saw what and the that, Spirit was yes, doing. Yes. And, and I, uh, 1983, when I got into Christianity, I went to the nearest church to our house after my April 1st experience. I didn't know what independent fundamentalist Baptist meant because I didn't know what any of the words meant. But it was just called Valley Baptist Church, and it was right near my house in Golden Valley, Minnesota. So a bunch of us would start going. We found out they had church on Sunday night. We didn't know they were different between the Sunday morning and the Sunday night, so we would start to just go on Sunday nights. And it was in the summer, and we'd come with our T-shirts and tank tops and shorts and flip-flops, and we'd sit in the front row and put our feet up on the modesty rail and ask questions during the sermon because we just had no idea what we were doing. Wow. It, and we got kicked out of the church. The pastor had to leave. It was... Um, uh, the church that I pastor now in, in Minneapolis feels an awful lot like that, and I've realized oh, I'm really just trying to catch up to those early days, right? Uh, there's a sort of a So what we're describing is conservative Christianity. Yes. We grow it now, you know. Oh. Well, you know. Ah, uh, uh, Jose, is at the door? It goes like a tan toy, you know. Ah, okay, we're leaving. We are coming. So you're leaving, you know, just uh, put it okay. on the light. Okay. okay. Oh, I love it. Okay. We could be here Gracias. all night. No, no, that was Jose who <laughs> gave us this room, and he just said, they are closing the restaurant, and we need to turn off the turn lights. Turn off the lights so when you leave. <laughs> we'll turn off the lights. So we're going to have to wrap this yes, up, Doug, and I, I, I regret all doing right, so, that. So, so let me just make this one last connection, if I can, because uh, please that thing that was happening in the counterculture of the hippie kids and the the rise of what became the baby boom of these kids is happening in suburban and exurban households. There are women predominantly who are in second and third ring suburbs whose faith is compelling them to no longer support the Republican agenda. And this new move that some of these same Christians used to say, like, the hippie kids can't fit. Now they're having to face that down with these suburban living middle class people who are saying, my faith demands that we no longer capitulate to the Republican agenda in this country. It is, I really do think, and maybe I'm just off my rocker here, but I think it is it has the potential over the next decade to be as profound of a movement as we've seen of spiritual movements here. And it's less recognizable because it doesn't, it, it's not screaming out with the same kind of culture clash, but that women's march the day after Trump's inauguration, um, that was the Woodstock. And of, I have to this say, area. you know, one of the secrets about that march was how many Christian women yes. participated. And there were many, and I use that term, you know, carefully, but I think people understand what I mean when I say Christian women. Yes. There were many evangelical many women. Driven uh, by their faith. Of every age, yes. but an awful lot of young ones. And that, so right now, let's just say there's somebody listening to this podcast who really has felt in bondage. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even truly afraid mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of expressing their own doubts about the political yeah. direction of their evangelical faith, of their evangelical fellows, the church they were raised in, whatever. And they, they feel almost afraid. 
How do you advise them? What, what, what should a person do? They say, you know, I've had these thoughts myself. I've been concerned about these same things. I don't like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the direction things are going. I think this is away from the gospel, not towards it. Where can they go to find yeah. some support and some yeah. folks they can talk to and, and learn about? Yeah, I, uh, of the advice I have, part of it is to really trust that, in, that voice that they hear inside, that, that still voice, that small voice maybe, or that loud, reson- however they're hearing it, to, um, give it a, to, to, to give it a space and to give it a, a, a real hearing because that's, that's a real thing. Now, now that's that would be my advice on, on nearly any topic because I think that's um, if if one can't listen to the spirit of God that is within them they'll have a hard time listening to the spirit of God from any other space so I just think it's a really helpful thing to to nurture up that that thing that's happening on the inside and to know that there's a lot of other people who are going to give them a they're going to sell them an entire package that goes with that with that calling and they don't have to they can. They can buy it a la carte. Um, I, I'm a little concerned that because I'm a, you know, on many topics, I'm, I'm an uber lefty kind of, you know, progressive. Um, I, I'm not quite as far left as Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm almost mm-hmm. to the point that I really so should love my neighbors. The journey. Yeah, but I think Jesus is coming by uh, like a biker that's always says, on your left, and he's, you know, <laughs> he's always gonna pass you on the left. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're never gonna get too, too radical for Jesus. Um, but as someone who's way over there and really wants to support politics and policies that kind of feel lefty, um, it's super easy for me to sort of put a package together for someone and say, oh, by the way, if you, if you take this topic, you care about immigrants, you also have to think this way about guns, and you have to think this way about taxes, and you have to think this way about the Electoral College. And it's what comes out in a platform. Yeah. And you don't have to do that. Um, but, but if you're not voting, um, consider it. If, if voting is all you do toward the common good, you're probably not doing enough. Mm. But if you're not including voting in your contribution to the common good, I, I, th- I think you have some room to, to include some important things mm-hmm. at, at the public level or at the um, national level and at the, at the state level and all. But then there's also a lot of websites. So Vote Common Good is a place that has one of those. Uh, the group that I'm a part of is called um, Common Good Christians. That has one, one called Red Letter Christians. These are all like .coms or .orgs. Yes. Um, if, you're, if they're a church person, there's a network of churches called WITH. It's called the WITH Collective. So it's progressively minded evangelical churches all around the country that are connecting with each other. Often, uh, almost always, I think in this case of WITH, always inclusive of LGBT people. Um, sometimes Q, uh, but all those letters mean something. Yes. Uh, a lot of people don't know. It's just sort of a, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it feels like an acronym or something. Mm-hmm. They don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. But queer is another category and mm-hmm. that, that can be sort of non-normative and sometimes that's excluded and that's a big deal to some people and doesn't mean anything to anybody else but um, so it it starts to it starts to break the break the categories open and I'll say that progressive evangelicals are going to get a lot of things right and a lot of correctives and there's a number of things that we're gonna all be arguing for that in decades to follow we're gonna be glad that someone shored this up and if we think we know what those are right now uh, we're we're probably gonna be shown something different by well, I, I would argue that the Christian life begins by taking a big risk. 
admitting that I'm a sinner, yep. that I need a savior, mm -hmm. confessing my own failures, and leaping out in faith yeah. to trust God. So in this instance, yeah. the safer we feel, probably yes, the further right. we are from that that's right. moment yeah. of conversion, of yeah. change, of yeah. calling and adventure. Mm -hmm. So I hope folks who are listening will do uh, what Doug has done, what countless others have done, what our dear Dietrich did. Mm. Challenge the status quo, mm -hmm. uh, take a leap of faith at great risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It may kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it'll still be the best thing you've ever done. Yeah. But there are others who are on that path with yeah. you. And 56 minutes is the longest I've ever gone on, the, on really? one of these podcasts. But this is the most amount of fun I've had doing ah, a podcast. Don't think that. Oh, I really there was some dead time it. in there. There was some. Yeah, yeah, some that's dead right. It's going to be a little shorter by the time you guys listen to it. But <laughs> could be fifty-four. My minutes. my conversation partner has been Doug Paget, and you'll find him at. Doug I was going to say Welcome Good, but you got DougPaget.com. Yeah. So if you want to know him the way I've gotten to know him. Go to DougPaget.com, read some of his books, buy them on smile.amazon.com, help the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, mm -hmm. check us out here again, and watch for us out on the campaign trail, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when's that tour going to take place? In 2020. In 2020. Yeah, so yeah. just keep, be watching yeah. for Vote Common Good. I'll be out there on the road with Doug again. I hope many more times this time around. I'm sure. I'll have a little more time to plan for it. But it's been a great conversation, Doug. Thanks a lot. Real honor. <laughs>